0: Good morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. At this point, I did a little math this morning. We've been in Colossians since September 12th. I counted the number of weeks we've been through it. We're now starting chapter 2. There are 29 verses in chapter 1. It took us 22 weeks to get through 29 verses. That's 1.3 verses per Sunday. Today, I'm going to lower the average. We're only doing one verse. So, and uh, Christian and I talk about these things. I'm like, man, there's, you know, when I first came here, I, I preached one sermon and, and early on in my ministry. This is like six and a half years ago. And I put like every doctrine you can imagine into one sermon. I was just loaded in a lady, for those of you who remember Amy Sodis, whom I love and miss. And she came up to me and she said, Pastor Mark, you know, you're going to be with us for a long time. Slow down. (laughs) I was like, you know, I'll take that. That's a a great advice. So we're slowing down, and that's fine. We got a lifetime to get through these verses. So we're in Colossians Colossians 2, verse 1, and before we jump into this, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your grace in Jesus Christ that has paid for our sins and made us righteous and new in you, and I pray that as your word tells us, if we are obedient and we trust you, you will act. So we trust your spirit to act as we trust in you and follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name, that you would come and do great things through your word this morning. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Is it easier to play games on your phone or to read a book, is it easier to go to the gym or to stay home, watch Netflix, and eat nachos? (laughs) Is it easier to love others, or is it easier to love yourself? I think we all know the answers to those questions. They're pretty obvious. And what they reveal is, honestly, that anything that is worth doing is likely to be hard. And so, at least it's, it's likely to be harder than not doing it. Choosing to work out is harder than not working out. Choosing to love your spouse is harder than not loving your spouse. Although if you don't, your life will get harder. <laughs> Choosing to do what's anything that's worth doing is always going to come with a cost or a price. It's gonna, there's going to be difficulty involved. And that is what Paul shows us in Colossians 2.1. That though he struggles for the church, so there's the hardship is his struggle for the church. And what he shows us is that it's worth it because he loves the church. But why does Paul love them? What motivates Paul to endure the hardship of loving the church when he could have easily just stayed home and and, and stayed in his previous lane of being a Pharisee and rising up into the, the religious ranks of stardom that he was already in? Why would he choose what's hard instead of taking the easy path? Well, apart from the gospel itself causing this change in Paul... Jesus meeting him on the road to Damascus and flipping a switch in Paul, forgiving his sins, redeeming his heart, blinding him, and then opening his eyes three days later to the revelation of the truth in Jesus Christ and sending Paul on a mission to build the kingdom of God. Apart from that, what then, at that moment, causes Paul to say, not only has this change made me say, I'm going to go and I'm going to change the world. I'm going to build and plant churches all over Asia Minor and into Rome and all over the place. What causes Paul to go on three missionary journeys with all the hardships that are involved with it? What is his motivation? And you could answer that question in a lot of ways. You could say it was Jesus. You could say it's the gospel. You could say it was the glory of God. And all those things would be true, and all those things would be priorities and primary reasons why Paul does that. But from those things, what is it that sends Paul into communities and says, I'm going to do this for you? It's love. It's his love for those people, which is a product of his love for Jesus. So what is it really that motivates Paul to endure the hard things of building, And we'll look at the hard things Paul went through. What, in, what motivates him to endure the hardships of building the church so that he can build the church? So I'm going to show you what the answer to that question ultimately is by first showing you why we must endure the difficulty of affectionately loving the church. Now listen to what I just said. It is difficult to affectionately love the church So, you have to endure in order to do it well. Because when we talk about love and affection in the church, it's always like, oh, love each other. It's just like this kind of like flowers, candies, and rainbows kind of idea that, like, you know, everything's just just love, 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 just love each other. It'll be soft and gentle and easy. Are you kidding me? Love is hard, love is difficult, love is forgiving, love is enduring, love is a challenge. When your spouse comes up to you and starts getting angry at you because you did something you shouldn't have done or said something the way that you, you shouldn't have said it and you don't even know you said it that way and they're like, why would you talk to me that way? And you're like, I don't know what I did wrong. You have to like endure with patience and listen. That's hard. It's easier just to be like, no, stop yelling at me. And then you just get in this fight. That's, that's the easy route. It's hard to be patient and forgiving and loving. Love is hard. And loving the church is hard because if you think it's difficult to love one person that you live with, you have to love hundreds of others. Which means there's a hundred different personalities, a hundred different perspectives, hundreds of of differences in in views on the world, world worldviews, and even different interpretations of the Bible itself. So even within the same church, you've got different people with different doctrinal perspectives. That's hard to love people when those things are going on. And so what we see Paul do is example for us how to do that. And so I'm going to show you why we must love and endure the difficulty of affection and loving the church. And then, I'm going to show, and then I'm going to tell you how to do it. Because I think there are two simple, easy take-homes that you can hear today, Take home, put in your pocket, and use them immediately. They're going to help you endure affectionately loving the church. So in Colossians 2.1, Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So the general idea here that Paul is modeling for us is what and how our hearts ought to feel For the church. And when I say the church, keep in mind, I'm not talking about the church at Colossae or the church in Laodicea or Grace Church of Osceola or this church or that church. We're talking Big C Church, the church universal, the kingdom of God, God's people, genuine believers, no matter where they are, no matter what color their skin or their perspective on politics or their worldview on certain things people who have genuinely trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation, those people are the church. And they are all over the world. And we have such a narrow view of the church because we identify what church is based on our particular church. Wherever you go, what your pastor says, it's kind of like your view of the church. What, uh, your, what doctrines your church has, that's, that's your view of what the true church is. And we kind of sometimes don't really expand our view to see that like, I wonder how Christians in say like the Middle East who are running for their lives, how they understand what Christianity is like, how different that is from ours. And that's, I'm not saying that we need to think the way they think. We can't think the way they think. We live in a free country and we're sitting here free of persecution to do whatever we want. And there are Hundreds of other free countries throughout the world who are doing the same thing, as well as not free countries that are Christians hiding in basements, reading the word together and praying because that's how they have to do it. I think we just need to just expand our view a little bit and realize when we talk about church there's a difference between talking about the gathering of individuals in your community who meet at the one building every Sunday morning and the kingdom of God filled with people from all over the world with totally different perspectives on everything. Speak different languages. Different interpretive challenges of the Bible just because of their language. There's just a whole world of Christianity that we are not privy to Because we live in a nice little Americanized world where we are literally given tunnel vision by social media and the culture to see things your way and our way. And Paul does not have that same view. What Paul models for us is how we ought to view the entire church, the church universal. And though Paul struggled for the church, it was his affection. And his love, not for just the people, those individual peoples in that local church, but his love for the idea, the kingdom, God's people, everywhere. He loved them so much because he loved Jesus so much. And Jesus loves all the church so much that Paul endures the struggle, which he says here, struggle in verse one, in order to love them well. And so what we see Paul Showing us is, it was his affection for the church that motivated, his love for the church that motivated him to endure through his struggle. Anything worth doing will come with some risk and some hardship. Look at 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-four 24 through 28. And what you see from Paul is what he means when he says Struggle. Look at what Paul endures for the church. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Five times he was lashed in his back. 39 times. Five times 39. Do the math. I don't know. What is it? 200? 195. 190. Thank you. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Never I Anyways, what was it? 195? 195 lashes in your back. And so you don't receive them all at once. It's not 195 in a row. It was five separate times. You received it 39 times. Even in one sitting, 39 lashes is going to hurt. So here's what happens. You get lashed on the back. It splits your back open. I'm um, going to try not to be graphic here. Uh, <laughs> There was once, one time when I lived in Miles City and I was preaching at Easter and I described the death of Jesus very in, in a lot of details. And there were a couple people in the back who literally passed out because of the description. And I learned on that day, careful. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not everyone has the same stomach as me. So I'm going to try to be uh, very vague here. Um, when your skin is tore open from so many lashes, it... It opens, and then it heals, and as it heals, that skin tightens, and that tightening skin starts to just, you know, so like eventually your back becomes really tight, especially with 39 lashes, and then those same wounds are reopened over and over and over again and healed over and over and over again. His back must have been a gruesome sight, and he was likely that Paul was in an extreme discomfort for a large part of the later part of his life just from those lashes, because of the, the, the healing over wounds that are already healed, and then the tightening of the skin, the discomfort that that produces is unimaginable. Okay, so that's one thing. five times received at the hands of the Jews, forty lashes last one, three times beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, that's when he was in Laodicea, or in, uh, uh, yeah, in Laodicea and, and he was stoned almost to the point where he was almost dead when he was in Antioch. and so Uh, or in Galatia, the provinces of Galatia, and they stoned him nearly to death. They dragged him out of the city because they thought he was dead. That's how dead he looked. And then he woke up from from being unconscious and goes right back to preaching the gospel immediately. So once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. Three times shipwrecked. If one of you, and one time in your life was ever shipwrecked, shipwrecked, wouldn't you tell everyone that story all the time? I mean, we would all know about it. You'd come back like, oh, we were on a cruise, and the cruise crashed, and it fell, and we were in the ocean, and we were swimming to safety, and we, I thought I was going to die. It was it a was huge. And you would have this huge testimony about how God saved your life. It would be this big deal. It happened to Paul three times. After the second time, you'd be like, are you kidding me again? Like... <laughs> You're just floating in the ocean like, am I supposed to die here? Like, that has got to be the amount of suffering this man endured. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Um, terrifying? A night and a day? 24 hours drifting in the sea? That sounds Terrifying. I would, all I'd be thinking is, I'm going to get eaten by a shark. Like, that would be the only thought in my head. And he's just drifting at sea because he's been shipwrecked probably the third time. He's probably just floating there. Like, I guess this is my life. He's <laughs> floating in the sea. Verse 26, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, the Jews who are trying to kill him because he's preaching the gospel. Danger from the Gentiles, the non-Jews who are trying to kill him because he's preaching the gospel. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. There is no place Paul can go where there's not danger. Verse 27 In toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Let me translate. All the hardships that Paul goes through and he says, and above it all, my biggest burden is my love for you. We, and I can't speak for everyone here, so maybe I shouldn't say we, I have no idea what it means to struggle in ministry. (laughs) When I look at what Paul goes through, I'm just like, I have this quick temptation to go, I'm not doing enough for God. That's a quick temptation. Now, I think that's a little foolish and a little wise. A little wise in the sense to go, you know what? I'm not. I'm not doing enough. And At the same time, God's like, dude, I didn't write this in the Bible so you'd feel condemned and judged for your lack of passion for me. I've got you in your lane, Mark. That was Paul's lane. That was for Paul. You've got yours, and you have yours. So stay in your lane. Do what you're called to do. Fulfill your ministry, but realize there will be struggle. That is a reality of all ministry. And so Paul was willing to endure these hardships because of his great affection and love for the church. So his ministry was, as he says, a struggle. Now that word struggle in the Greek, the Greek word for struggle there is Agon, it's from which we get our English word agony. So Paul is agonizing over the church. He's agonizing for the Colossians, fighting for their holiness and their happiness and their growth in Christ. But here's the strange yet beautiful reality about Paul's affectionate, agonizing for the Colossians. He had never been to Colossae. He had never seen the Colossians. He didn't know them. He didn't know what they looked like or what kind of personalities they had or what their meeting place looked like. He had never visited, yet he agonized for them. Just imagine how we would feel in like a circumstance like that. Like some guy you've never known, never met, you've heard of, he's maybe well-known, In the church community, and he walks in here one day, he's preaching from the pulpit that day, and he proceeds to tell you to spend an entire sermon on how deeply his love and affection for you runs. You'd be like, You don't know us? Who are you, dude? Isn't that crazy that we kind of, I think that would be almost our immediate reaction. But that's what Paul does Paul sets an example for the church on how we are to endure the agony of loving each other. And his point is not that loving you is agony. That's not the point. That's not the right way to say it. His point is loving you is a struggle because to love you well will be hard because to love you well is to love you like Christ. And when Christ loved you, he died for you. And when Christ loved you, he suffered for you and he endured hardship and he spoke truth and he spoke to your heart and he comforted you and he blesses you and he serves you. But he also went through the difficulties and the challenges of speaking truth in places where truth didn't want to be received and he suffered for it. And then he warns you, if you want to live a life that is following me, it's going to cost you. Just like Christian shared with us this morning, it's going to cost you. That's part of the Christian life. And he even says in John 15, I think it is, they're going to hate you because they hate me. So it, it comes with cost. Loving each other comes with agony. And that's not a negative thing like, oh, I hate loving you. It's like, oh, to love you. It's sacrifice. And could it be anything else but sacrifice? Look at Ephesians 5 when Paul talks about husbands loving your wife. How is a husband supposed to love his wife? Like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her sacrifice. That's love. Love is sacrificial. If it's not sacrificial, it's not love. So it will be a struggle to love each other. That doesn't have to be a bad thing. Why don't we embrace the struggle? Most of my conversations as a pastor with church people who have problems with other people is, I have a struggle with this person. Can you please stop it? Can you change them? Can you fix that person? Can you fix this struggle? And sometimes I'm just going, this is part of growing up. This is part of becoming the church. This is what it's like to be the church. You have to struggle with each other. You have to endure the hardship. Yeah, people are different from you. They think differently than you. They look differently than you. They act differently than you. And they choose different sins than you. And sometimes their sins affect you. And that is part of your journey in your Christian life is enduring loving them in the midst of their difference. That's what the gospel is. is It unites those differences. And instead of looking at those people and being like, why doesn't this person just change? I'm looking at you going, why don't you just love them? I have three kids. Only one of them is like me. <laughs> the other, oh, one of them is not like me at all. And one of them is kind of in between. And, and I look at them and I go, it would be very easy for me to choose not to love the differences in them. But it's impossible for me not to love the differences in them because I'm their dad and loving them is just so, well, it is agonizing, but it's easy, you know? And I, and I love loving them. And, and so like, it's, it's easy for us to make that connection. Like, oh yeah, loving our children, are all different and unique and, cra- you know, they're crazy and this one's like that and this one's like this and this, my child, this child does that and, and we look at their differences, and we go, oh, and I love that about them. And yeah, loving my kids is hard because it costs something, but it's okay because I love them. It's easy to talk about that way with our children because of our affection for them. But we don't talk about that way with each other, why? Because even though we do say that we love each other, we don't have affection for each other. And so we have to grow in that. And in growing in that and enduring that together as people, that is gonna be costly and it's gonna be hard and you have to endure. Paul's loving people who aren't even in his vicinity. The Colossians aren't close to him. They're not, he hasn't seen them, he hasn't met them, he doesn't know them personally, he doesn't have this one on one relationship, yet he loves them. It's easy to love those who are geographically closer to you, and that is fine. Like, this is a reality, right? Your friends, friendships are developed by geography, right? Who was your best friend growing up? Uh, the kid who was in your class right? Your next door neighbor was your best friend. And then you went to school and it was the, the kid who was like, maybe had the locker next to you or was in a lot of your same classes. That's the, that was your best friend growing up. And then you were in high school together and you stayed friends because you saw each other every day and all the time. And maybe you played sports together or did plays together or did music together or whatever. And you developed this friendship and then college comes. Maybe you went to the same college or maybe you split and went different ways. And now years later, are you still great friends with that person? Probably not. Maybe if some of you have that one friend that you're still really close to, but most likely those friendships fade. Why? Because we move. Geographically, our, relation, our relationships are geographical. We're closer to people and it's easier to love those who are closer to you. And that's okay. That's part of life. God put you where he put you and put those same people around you. So love them. That's wonderful. And it's easier To love those who are not only geographically closer to you, but who who you also happen to like more. Maybe they share the same interests as you. Maybe they have the same perspectives as you. And so you find an interest in them, and they find an interest in you. So not only are they close to you, but they're like you, and they think like you, and they like the things you like. They have the same interests, and so you develop a closer relationship. And that's fine, too. But the problem with this proximal love is that we tend to love less those who are either not near us or who don't suit our interests. Our love for one another is not predicated on our geographical location or being in close proximity to one another. Our love for one another is predicated on the blood of Jesus Christ. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we all have the same metaphorical blood of Christ running through our body, running through our veins, and as one body, we share in Christ equally and mutually. And that means that our brothers or sisters in Christ who live in Seattle or Mexico or Russia are just as tightly related to you in Christ as your believing spouse or your believing children or your believing best friend. And though you will certainly be closer in fellowship to those who are in your proximity geographically, it is not their nearness to you that makes you united to them. It is Jesus who unites you to them. So there is a difference in united relationship between I'm sorry, there's no difference in your united relationship between you and your believing spouse and you and a believing brother living in Ukraine. No difference in relationship. Difference in relationship on earth in the way you interact with them because one you interact with and one you don't even know. But what Paul shows us in this text is that does not change the the united nature of our relationship to them through Jesus. Jesus. And that Paul also models for us that you can still love that brother or sister you've never met just as much as you love the person that you spend every week with. So what does that mean to us? Well, Paul examples for us what it means. He visited Ephesus more than once, spent 18 months there, and then visited them again. He had a very tight-knit relationship with, Eph- with the Ephesian believers and with the, with the elders in the church there. And he said to these people in Ephesians 1.16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. They're probably like, oh, Paul. Remember when he came over and had coffee with us? He's such a nice dude. I love when he was preaching that one week. Like, they had this bond with Paul. They know what he looks like. They know how tall he is. He probably showed them the scars on his back. I was like, look at these babies. And, you know, like, Paul... Paul knew these people really well and, and he had a great relationship with them and he says, you know, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you my prayers. And then to the Colossians, whom he never saw and never met, he said in Colossians 1.3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Very similar greeting with very similar degree of affection And what Paul examples for us is that our love and affection and and unity with one another is not predicated on location. Yes, location certainly increases affection and unity because we get to act it out in person with one another. But we must avoid the fallacy that our relationship with each other is based on our geographical setting. My point is this. It is healthy and is healthy and good to affectionately love those close to you. But it is not healthy and good to affectionately love those close to you because they are close to you or because they are suited to your personality or because they share similar interests. Those things cannot be cannot be the primary motivating factor for your love and affection for them. Jesus has to be your primary motivating factor for your love and affection for one another. The reason this is important to check the motivation of our love and affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ is because if we let our proximity to each other dictate our affections for one another, then Christian love has nothing to do with Jesus. And it has everything to do with the entire world revolving around me. If proximity is the reason for love, then everything that orbits around me and that I gravitationally pull in toward me makes me the center of my universe. And only those who get pulled in because they're near get my love. And we think to ourselves in such small perspectives. Well, I only have so much love to give out, right? I mean, I can't just be like handing out love across the universe. Like I only have so much love to give out so I can only love the people directly in my life. If that were true, you would not be saved. If your love was limited, you could not be saved. Because if your love is limited, then the God of love who resides in you is limited. And if his love is limited, then you don't get salvation. Because only a few would. And if his love was limited, he wouldn't be God and we would all cease to exist and reality would be not reality. And our entire concept of all things would not exist. Do you see the problem? How we go from, I only have a little bit of of love to give out to if that's true, then God doesn't exist. But he does exist and he does love with an endless love. Endless. Endless. Just Think about that for a second. There's no cap, there's no limit, no limit whatsoever. He can love without end. Poor and poor and poor. His resource of love just has no bottom. It just goes on forever. It's like French fries at Red Robins. Endless, endless. We were just there this week. It just popped into my head. They're not that great anyways. But God's love is. So here's the reality. We think to ourselves, I can't just like, I can't just like love everybody all the time. I only have enough time to love certain people a certain way. And what I, I think about that kind of mentality is, how, how can you claim the very gospel that has saved you and yet not love like with an incredible amount of exploding love that gets all over the room and all over the people you know and beyond them, like a bomb of love that goes off and lands all over the world. Why don't we love so greatly that not only do you love everyone in your proximity in your life so well and so affectionately, that you also then, after loving them and while loving them without end, you continue that love beyond them to other believers in America or in the state. Who you don't know and you pray for them. And what about the missionaries in different countries who are spreading the gospel? How much do you love them? And how much do you love the people who are receiving those gospel messages and believing? And how much do you pray for and love the church in China or Africa or the Middle East or Europe or Russia or Canada or wherever or South America or Australia? We limit God when you decide to limit the own, your own extent of love. We literally cap off God. We're like, well, I can only give this much. And I, there's a difference between loving people and expending energy on people. You can't expend an endless amount of energy on people because we need rest. That's, we're human. But the reality is we just like totally cut off God at the legs. And we're like, well, you can only love so much. We would never say that about God. But is it not he who lives in me? Is it not Christ in me? Galatians 2.20 is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself, who loved me and gave himself up for me. He is me. He is in me. I'm a new creation. You are a new creation in Christ. It is not you anymore. You are limited in love. In fact, you cannot love. Christ can. And Jesus in you has an endless supply of love for the people around you and beyond you. So I think we need to start by just changing the way we think and and realizing that there is an endless supply of love for us to pour out for other people. It is not just about proximity. It is not just about... Location is not just about the people in my life that I care most about. Should you be praying for those people? Should you be loving those people? Should you be serving those people? Should you be giving to those people? Should you be investing in them? Absolutely. Are you going to give them more than someone, another believer is on the other side of the world? Yes, of course you are. It's, it's unavoidable. I'm not telling you to give the people in your life less so that people you don't know can get more. I'm telling you give the people in your life more and give the people you don't know more and just give more more and it will never end. And if you do, trust me, God will supply. You will not run out of love. You cannot. In fact, I will say this on a practical tangible, pragmatic level in your life, if you choose to continue to pour out more and more and more and more love for the people in your life, your spouse and your children and and, and your children's friends and your friends and your church family and the people in your community and the people in your state and the people in your, maybe your denomination and the people across America and the people beyond, if you continue to pour more and more love into those people, you will begin to practice the art, and the beauty of loving. Amen. And when you do, you will love loving. I promise. You will love it. And you'll be like, this is actually not as hard as I th- thought it would be like, I thought this would be so painful and I didn't have the energy for it. And as you love more and Christ pours himself out of you, you realize, you know what? It's not even me who's doing the loving. It's the Holy Spirit who is acting through me and manifesting himself out of me who's actually doing the loving. And his supply is endless. So I'm actually not exhausted. And when I do get exhausted, we just do what Jesus does. Retreat. Retreat and meet with the Father and pray and fill back up. As you pour out, I mean, when you love people, you're literally draining the Holy Spirit in you. I get that from Matthew chapter five, or Mark chapter five, when Jesus is walking and a woman touches his heel. And the text tells us that Jesus, sensing that the Spirit had poured out of him or drained out of him, he said, Who touched me? He didn't know who touched him. He just felt the Spirit drain. That's what happens. Jesus healed someone. It was the Spirit who did the healing, and the Spirit who got drained. Jesus has to retreat and go fill back up. When you love people, you are draining the Holy Spirit from your body. You need to go get refilled. Because if you try to do it on empty, there is an, there is an emptiness to your humanity, but there is an endlessness of love in the Holy Spirit and in Jesus Christ who lives in you. So, yes, you're, you feel empty when you try to love people because you try to do it in your flesh, and that ain't going to work. You need to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to do it with the love of christ you need to you need to love 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 and when you are empty you go i'll be right back give me five minutes you go in a room in a closet close the closet don't tell anyone you were there pray 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 come back out and go who needs love all right that's that, that's how you love all right church and so i'm telling you like we just don't we just don't I'm telling you that that's easy, while I'm telling you that it's hard. Like, it's not easy to make the decision that I have to love these people. I sit in my office on Sunday mornings, and my biggest prayer on Sunday mornings is that, not that I would preach a great sermon on Sunday morning, I pray for the sermon, I pray for my heart and my mind, and I, and I got all kinds of things I'm praying for. On Sunday morning, I lock my office door. If you ever go up to my office door before church and you wiggle and it's locked, I'm praying, leave me alone. So, <laughs> I'll come out and love you in a minute, all right? One of the ways that I, one of the things that I pray in my office is mainly, and I, I think I shared this a few weeks ago, I want to come out of that office like Jesus. I want to walk around this church and greet you, and I want you not for me, not about me, but I want you to feel like I'm talking to Jesus. Like I feel like this shepherding, loving comfort and presence and peace of my Lord himself when I talk to any Christian, fill in the blank, whoever it is. I I look at you and I think that's what you need every day of your life. And if there were enough hours in the day and there, were, and there was enough energy in my body, I would call every single one of you every single day and say, how can I love you today? Amen. And so when I pray in my office, I want to come out and I just want to pour love into you. And let me tell you, on Sunday afternoons when I go home, my wife goes, are you tired? And I'm like, no, I think I'm okay. She's like, you should lay down. I lay down, five hours later I wake up. I'm like, I guess I was tired. <laughs> I guess I wasn't empty. Now, my flesh was empty and I needed the rest, but my spirit's empty. I mean, just preaching right now, I'm pouring, I hope. I hope the spirit's pouring out. Amen. I hope that's him. I think when it, like I've said this before, I think if it gives me, I think it start to notice. But, but we all need to have that kind of mentality of like, I can't go to church today just to consume. Now, you should consume. Right now, you should be consuming the word of God. And you should be getting fed and filled. And and just, like, you guys, I I hope that you're sitting in your seats like, will you just stop preaching so I can go love people right now? I get the point. Now, just be done. And let me go do it, man. Like, I hope that you feel that motivation. I hope the spirit is swelling up inside of you with love. And you're like, I just, all I want to do is practice this loving people. Mark's telling me that I have an endless supply of love in Jesus in me and the Holy Spirit is ready and willing to pour it out. Why don't I just go do that now? I hope that's what you're feeling. But I also hope when you come to church on Sunday morning, you're not coming just to consume, but to give, to pour out, to invest in each other, to love each other. Which means before you walk in those doors, you have to have, you have, to have had prayed. Prayed. You have to sit down. You have to talk to God. You have to beg him. You have to plead with him. You have to retreat. You have to have that moment in the morning and say, Lord, this morning I'm going to church. I'm going to see a hundred people that I'm supposed to love. And the only way I'll love them is if you love them through me. So fill me with your love. Fill me with affection for these people. Don't let it just be a, a, a fake compassion. Or just like this, pretend love. Let it be so genuine. Swell in me and build up in me an affection for your people that I cannot have unless it's you doing it. Now, take me to church. Do you go to church like that? I'm going to bet no. Because there are Sunday mornings I leave my house and I'm not going to church like that. But here's the difference. I get a little time in my office that you don't get. Where I have to sit down and go, if I don't start thinking that way, today's not going to go well. And you're not going to be blessed. Do you think that way when you go to work? Do you pray like that every morning? Do you think like that and pray like that before you go have dinner with another family? Before you have Christmas with your family? Before you... Your wife or husband comes home from work before you spend time with them, before you invest in your children. Do you you think and pray like that? God, fill me with genuine affection so I can love these people because loving them well will get hard at some point. And if I am not truly driven by an affection and love for them, I won't do it well. That kind of love's not easy. It's going to cost you. And it's going to be burdensome. It's going to be exhausting. It's going to be challenging. I think honestly, I mean this is a reality of humanity. Let's just be honest with ourselves. If what I'm preaching right now motivates you to love well, And you're thinking, I need need that. I need to be praying that God would develop in me a genuine affection and love for his people, whether in close proximity or across the world. There are millions of Christians in this world who need my prayers. And I'm too tired and I don't have enough love for them. No, God, you do. If you're feeling that, you're like, I need to start praying more. I need to start being in the Word more, I need to start loving more, and I've got this endless supply of love in me. Okay, this sermon, this is, this is really hitting me where I need to be hit right now, and I'm and i and I'm gonna go do that this week. I'm gonna do that today. Like, I'm gonna make sure I spend time just praying, and you know, you're feeling like motivated, and you're feeling like, I really feel like the Holy Spirit is speaking to me right now. Here's the reality. Where is he on Tuesday? Or Thursday? Or next Saturday, he shows up a little bit on Saturdays, right? Because you know you have church the next morning. You're like, "Oh, oh, oh! You got to get up for church in the morning. You sure, you want to do that? <laughs> do you really want to? Do you really want to choose that sin today on Saturday when you gotta face me tomorrow morning? Like that's kind of a mentality. I'm not saying you have that mentality, but a lot of Christians do, and a lot of people who go to church do with this kind of just i i love the sermon on sunday it really hits me between the eyes and i'm really feeling it and then sunday afternoon it's like you talk to your spouse oh i said a good sermon i really feel like we need to love more and, and then you know and it's, and that's great that's good i'm not telling you i'm not making fun of you i'm not telling you that's bad that's wonderful but where is it 2 days later because if we don't put it into practice today you won't put it into practice tomorrow you have to choose To develop the habit of loving people. And that is hard. You have to wake up every morning with the desire to make that happen. You have to choose affection. You have to choose love. You have to choose it. You have to make effort. You have to put in the work. You have to develop a new habit. New habits, just on a human physiological level, take approximately three to four weeks to actually ingrain in our psyche. But that's just physiological. The Holy Spirit exceeds and goes beyond physiology or biology or psychology. He can do more than that. Yes, he is the one orchestrating the synapses in your brain that make connections that develop new habits. That's part of his work on the biological level is developing new habits in you by working in your brain as you start to think differently. But also on a spiritual level, he he, he can create new habits instantly if he wants to. And so, what I'm telling you is don't just say, Oh yeah, I need to love more. Oh yeah, I really, I just don't actually genuinely have that affection for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are in Japan. I just don't have it. I need to have it. Okay, I'm gonna try to have it. I'm telling you to have it, to love them. Pray for them today. Don't wait. Don't wait. Do not think that when you leave church today your spiritual day is over. We do that, don't we? We're just kind of like checked out. Woo, that was a lot. Well, oh, it was a long day. We had communion. You know, we have communion every second Sunday. So it's was like, "Woo, I kind of got two messages today. There was communion, that and then and then there was then there was a sermon. So we had two messages today. And there was music, and I had to talk to Susie and Jimmy about, what, you know, whatever. Like, got all this ministry going on, too. And for those of you who serve, you also gave today. The music team, the people helping with children's ministry, doing the soundboard, people who clean the church, people who are helping with all kinds of things, people who help set up communion, the kids who help with all those things, all those people are giving, too. So they long, whew, a lot of, lot of message today, a lot of sermon today, a lot of, lot of truth for my brain and for my heart to download in addition to all the giving I'm doing, and then you go home and you're like, oh, I just need to rest. You Kind of like check out spiritually for the day. And I'm telling you, yeah, it's okay to be tired. You're human. You're meant to rest. That's totally fine. But we need to transfer truth into life. Like, we really have to do it. I, I'm all about building the kingdom of God. I, don't, and I, say, I say this so many times. So apologies if this is... Overdone, But I just can't stress this enough. I don't care about building a church. I have no interest in it. If we had 500 people in this building and 450 of them didn't care about doctrine, I would not consider that success. What I care about is your heart and soul on an individual level that you would love Jesus so much that you can't help but love other people without end which means I want that not just to be today's message so that I'm done and you go, yeah, that was a great sermon, Pastor Mark, and I hope you're encouraged and I hope you do say, that was a great sermon, Pastor Mark, and you give me a high five again like you did last week, all right, and I hope that that happens and I hope that that's real for you, but I don't want it just to be this thing that we do on Sunday and then you go home and nothing changes because that's what the rest of the church in America is doing and that is not building a kingdom. That is doing nothing. At best, we're building a church. And that is not in God's interest. God's interest is in building the church. The kingdom of God. Which means loving unbelievers to the point where they get saved. Then they come in. Then we grow. That's my motivation. That's where my heart is at. That's where my heart is for you. And the only way that happens is if you genuinely change. You genuinely grow. That you take this truth about this endless supply of love and the Holy Spirit that you have and you apply it Today, and it works tomorrow, and Tuesday, and Wednesday. And listen, Wednesday, you're going to be pretty depleted. And you haven't practiced the art yet of retreating and praying and getting filled back up. And that's why we send you a weekly refresh on Wednesday. Which all of you read, right? (laughs) I only heard one. Only one of you read it? Just kidding. So... Listen, we send that out on purpose. Yeah, it's to inform you what's going on in the church. There's a devotional in there that either Christian or I write. And we write that devotional for your soul. That is, fill back up. More word, more word, more word. Teach, teach, teach. Knowledge, filling, spirit, love, pour out. That's our hope. We just want to, want to just fill you back up. It's middle of the week. It's a reset or a refill. I can only tell you to do it. It's on you, and you know that. But I want you to know what I expect as your pastor, what I desire for you as an individual. I care about you, and I love you, and I want to shepherd you well. And I'm telling you, the best way I can shepherd you right now is to tell you, you don't love enough, and neither do I. I don't love you well enough. I admit it. Christian and I have been talking lately about some of the things that we're doing in ministry and he has literally had the opportunity to say what about this, this, this and that and I go "Uh, yeah I am failing, failing, failing and failing at that and I need to be better why? because I'm not letting love motivate my decisions we all need to grow on this this needs to be a daily application you have to desire it and you have to want it here's how you start pray you just pray Seriously, so juvenile, so simple, so basic, not novel at all, not interesting, not quotable for Instagram. <laughs> you know, no one's going to like check Instagram or Facebook later and be like, quote, pray Pastor Mark today. Like no one's going to put that on, on social media like, it was so, it was such a great quote. Like it's just so novel and not novel and basic and we all know we ought to pray. So I'm just telling you, pray. But, but there's a reason we pray because you need God's help. You can't survive without it. So pray that God would spark in you a a desire and affection for one another that would translate into love that pours out of you like Jesus. That's what I want for you. That's what God wants for you. And that is what the person sitting next to you needs. And that is what the missionaries in China or Afghanistan or Russia need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you, we love you, we love you. Um, we, we want to love you more and we're learning day by day, by your grace and by your word, you're teaching us how to love you better every day. And we want to love you so well that your love swells up in us and pours out into your, into your people, into your church and across the world. Remind us daily that there is an endless tank of love that you are just ready to pour out. Help us to refresh and refill daily. Help us to love each other well. We want to build your kingdom. It starts with love, and it begins in affection. So develop that in these people and in myself. I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. amen.